from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Gosh, there's a sibling that you don't know about. I called it long time ago, baby. Hello, I'm Dan McDougall. And I am Micah Crowdy. And this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each week we bring you stories of all kinds on a specific topic or theme. We've done shows on science and the paranormal. How people view Africa. Love. The relationships between animals and people. And many more. These shows all end up on our website. Storytelling.stanford.edu. And on Stanford iTunes. But before they get there, they start out right here. Broadcast live, like we're doing right now. Every week we're in here hosting the show live. But that isn't the only way we could do it. It would be simpler to pre-record everything. But there is something special about broadcasting live. It's certainly a lot riskier. CD players break, microphones malfunction, and sometimes I push the wrong button. But it's not just the risk. There's something special that comes from a live performance. Something that gets lost when you know you can edit it. To be fair, the stories we play are pre-recorded. Right, and that's great. You can do a lot with editing as well. But there's a little something extra in it when there's no filter. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next hour. What makes live performance so special? For the Stanford Storytelling Project, this is Coming to You Live. To start with, Micah experiences the ultimate in live performance, stand-up comedy. Right, and then you talk to two professionals that have made their career out of live performance. Yep, and then to end the show, you take us behind the scenes and onto the stage of the Stanford Spoken Word Collective Spring Show. All right, sounds like a good show. Let's do it. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. In our first story of the show, Micah Crowdy takes on the most nerve-wracking life performance he can think of, stand-up comedy, and lives to tell the tale. I never really set formal goals for college. Perhaps goal-setting would have been one of them had I got around to it. But there are certain things I figured I would have accomplished by graduation. Win the Super Bowl, win an Academy Award, and date a supermodel. Alas, I'm 6 feet, 160 pounds in shoes. I've never been to Hollywood, and as for the supermodel part, well, I'm 6 feet, 160 pounds, and I've never been to Hollywood. I did have one goal that seemed reasonable. I wanted to perform stand-up comedy at an open mic night at a real comedy club in front of an audience of strangers. Humor has always been a part of my family. My dad is a pastor, and he seems to spend as much time in the pulpit trying to entertain as he does trying to teach. Sorry, Dad. My brother would entertain groups of students in college with tales of our childhood. There was the one where my mom jumped into the pool fully clothed, the one where my mom started throwing rock-hard biscuits at us, and the one where my mom, well, I'm getting away from the point. Oh, sorry, Mom. I always liked making people laugh but I was more comfortable doing it while sitting with them at the dinner table or in class. To get up in front of them, microphone in hand, was another story. 
I could have done it differently, maybe perform to an audience of my friends on campus or make a funny video and post it on YouTube. But I wanted the real deal, with all the peril and potential rewards that it offered. I figured that doing stand-up comedy would seriously help my dating life. I imagined it going something like this. Beautiful woman. So, what did you do this weekend? Me. Oh, I did stand-up comedy. Beautiful woman then faints into my arms. When she regains consciousness, she asks, But where did you do it? I reply, At a comedy club in San Francisco. Beautiful woman faints into my arms again, wakes up, calls all her sorority sisters to tell them the news, and there is much fainting. There were some roadblocks between me and the swooning woman. First off, I had to write a stand-up routine. I had tried to do it a few years back, but I gave up after only managing a single paragraph on my insecurity over preferring smooth peanut butter to the more masculine chunky. A true story, but more sad than funny. Even if I could write the material, there was a second major obstacle. I'm a coward. Not just a coward, but a coward with stage fright. I strongly prefer talking about things to actually doing them. For instance, this year I was going to make a short film. It was to be a dark comedy, a humorous but slanted look at the angst of my romantic life. Entertaining, but also enlightening. I made surprising progress on the project. I actually wrote and cast the thing. But when it came time to film, well, I was pretty tired from all that writing and casting. A betting man would have put his money on me not performing, and some of my friends did. But there were a few things working in my favor. I had recently started writing comedic sketches, the kind of things you see on Saturday Night Live. Those were easier for me to write because they had stories and characters. I started carrying around a notebook to jot down my ideas and found that some of them were more suited for stand-up. After a while, I started having trouble falling asleep at night. I'd jump out of bed six or seven times to write out ideas and make sure that I didn't forget them. Eventually, I had ten pages of typed-out material. I even wrote special lines for hecklers or when jokes bombed. Excitedly, I scrolled through it bolding the good jokes. There was not that much font and bold at the end, but there was enough to do a five-minute routine. As for the cowardice, well, I volunteered to do an audio essay on the experience for the Stanford Storytelling Project. I might be able to put it off for a few weeks, but eventually I'd have to suck it up and get it done. I wanted to do it in San Francisco. It just sounded so much cooler than on campus or in Palo Alto, and I had heard of a place called The Brainwash that was supposed to be good for first-timers, which I assumed meant that it had a large audience that, while not particularly sober, would be epically supportive. This was in no way true, but I didn't know that at the time. I imagined them bathing me in wave after wave of laughter, only frowning when I told them at the end that it was my first time doing it. No, they'd say. That can't be true. I felt so close to him. Why would he lie to us? I managed to put it off for a few weeks. My main strategy was to wait until the day I was supposed to perform before asking anyone to borrow their car. Unfortunately, by then, they all had other plans. But eventually, I could put it off no longer. I borrowed a car from a friend and headed up the freeway. I was a little on edge during the trip, but once I got into the city, things took a turn for the worse. My stomach collapsed in on itself, and it felt like a large, invisible man was sitting on my chest. I thought to myself, this is a stupid idea. I had come too far to back out, and you can't make U-turns on one-way streets, so I proceeded to the club. I accidentally parked three blocks away and passed about a hundred empty spaces before I got to the brainwash. Well, I actually wasn't sure it was the brainwash when I got there. 
There are certain venues that are designed to do comedy. And then there's the brainwash. To start with, it's not just a comedy club. It's a comedy club slash cafe slash laundromat. Yes, laundromat. About half the building's covered with washers and dryers, and the other half is the cafe. The stage is about two feet by three feet, and there's a combination lock on the bathroom to keep the homeless out. To be sure, the place had character. But how was I going to do stand-up here? There were a few tables in front of the stage, then a large open space in front of the door, and a few more tables about 30 feet farther back. In the car, I had decided that it would be best to be the fifth comic on stage. The audience would be warmed up, but I would be out of there quick enough that it wouldn't take up my whole evening. When I got to the sign-up sheet, I wrote my name down at the next available slot. 24th. This was going to be a long night. watching the 23 comics in front of me. Comedians hate Hillary Clinton. Comedians think Hillary Clinton is a lesbian. And comedians are not necessarily funny. There were some very talented comedians. There were a bunch of okay comedians, and there were some bad comedians. Let me tell you, a bad comedian in a half-empty room is an awkward situation. Sometimes you just laugh because the silence hurts too much. I'm still not actually convinced that they all knew they were on the stage to do comedy. It seemed like one guy was just yelling at us. I'm not sure what I did to make him angry, but after four minutes I felt really bad about it. After two hours and several trips to the bathroom, having learned the combination, it was nearing my turn. I was nervous, but there was no way I could back out now. As I stood next to the stage, or rather as I stood next to the large step that acted as the stage, the host gave my introduction. This was actually pretty cool. If you've never performed at the Brainwash before, they give you a really loud ovation that lasts for quite a while. But this is a little deceptive, because it makes it seem like there are a lot more people in the audience than there actually are. As I was taking the microphone off the stand, I took a moment to scan the room. There were about 11 people scattered about, the bulk of them over 50 feet away from me in the back, and I wasn't even sure if they were paying attention. This was going to be an uphill battle. I had put a lot of thought into my opening joke because I figured if I could hook them at the beginning, they'd be with me the whole time. But after the loud cheering, I changed my mind at the last second and cracked that their cheering would probably be the high point of my act. One guy might have chuckled. Note to self, don't tell the audience you aren't going to be funny. I had some notes typed out in one hand and the complete text of my routine in my back pocket, just in case. My routine was about my bad memory, so if I forgot anything, I figured I could just play it off like I did it on purpose. Unfortunately, my hand was shaking due to stage fright and the white sheet of paper I was holding was flapping around like a flag in a hurricane. In speech classes, they tell you not to hold pieces of white paper while giving a presentation, but I had never taken a speech class. After the intro, I started into my material and many of the jokes actually got laughs, or at least a laugh. There was one girl in the back that was loving me. She was my target audience from that point on. If all else failed, at least one person thought I was funny. While on stage, I became a little more sympathetic towards the comedians that had done poorly. It's hard to work a small crowd. It's even harder when most of the audience is signed up to perform. They're thinking about their jokes, not yours. 
As the time passed, I got a little more comfortable on the stage. I started changing my voice and using my body language for more than broadcasting fear. Until it happened. The thing I feared most. A joke bombed. Not only did it bomb, but this was one of the few times I actually paused to let the audience laugh. For the first half of my routine, I was pretty much just trucking through, but I had become confident enough to leave this space. An empty space. But, as you might remember, I was prepared for this. I used my backup line, and the audience loved it. It was one of my biggest laughs of the night. It was all downhill from there. I sort of stumbled through the last section of my routine, but managed to end on a positive note. I thanked the crowd, told them it was my first time, and got off the stage without having wet my pants. A success by any definition. So, I was not amazing, but I definitely was not the worst of the night, and it was my first time. I learned a lot from the experience. I learned how important it was to project confidence, to not step on the audience's laughter, and to speak in coherent sentences. More importantly, I had done it. I got looks of admiration whenever I told people about it. Me, on stage, in a real comedy club, in San Francisco. I've done it once more since then so far, and the second time went much better. I reworked my material, projected confidence, and packed the audience with my friends. I plan on continuing until I'm discovered or until I have a nervous breakdown. Either way, beautiful women, you should now feel free to faint. After my experience with stand-up comedy, we wanted to learn more about the uniqueness of live performance. So Dan went to speak with two professionals who have made their living on live performance, Amy Freed and Kay Kostopoulos. I'm Amy Freed, and I'm a, a playwright and an artist-in-residence here at Stanford University in the drama department. I've been here for 10 years. I'm Kay Kostopoulos. I'm also a teacher in the drama department, professional actress and singer, and I've also been here for 10 years. They've worked together on a number of projects, and they share a love for theater, for entertaining through experience. I asked them why live performance has such an appeal to its audience, and why the live experience is unique. Because anything can happen, it's spontaneous. It's in action. I mean, that's the whole, uh, that's why it's called acting, based on action. It's uh, evolving before your eyes, and it can go anywhere. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely, and I mean, is it too... Um... <clears throat> mystical to say that there's something about your live spirit in the world as itself, embodying language, embodying thought and feeling, being willing to share that in a public forum with other live spirits that thought it was worth it to come out, um, is, is not only enhancing for the person that performs, but it is enhancing for the community that witnesses a person performing. And it's a way of saying yes to the human being and the human heart, which I still believe in, as a not a poetical term, but as a real term, as being primary to our value, valuation in life. Performance is a form of relationship. I don't think that looking at an object or a, an inanimate thing is a form of relationship. And one thing that's happening in the world now, and I think we should all be very aware of it and concerned about it, is that we are supplanting all forms of relationship with something that has to do with um, a relationship to something we can manipulate or tailor to our own desires or form to our own narcissism. That's a very different thing than 
living performance where there is a conversation, in effect, going on between those that are offering in performance and those that are offering by being there in response. Relationship was a theme they kept coming back to, this interesting combination of give and take between audience and performer. Conversation really seems to be the best word to describe it, because both performers and audience must feed off each other if it is to be a successful production. But are there benefits to live performance, both attending and participating, besides simple entertainment? Just for starters, I, you know, my best friends in the world and my husband are people that I met in theater, that I met in theater school many years ago, and they continue to be very, very close to me. And anybody who's ever been in a play or live performance knows that you carry that relationship and that experience for a long time after the play is closed. I mean, it's not always the most positive thing in the world, and you never forget that either. But there are some uh, friendships that uh, just go on, and the glow stays with you for many years, and the memories are fond. And collaboration is everything in theater. That's the other thing that's missing. There isn't really a boss. It'll fall apart if anybody pulls out their piece of the puzzle can't sustain itself. It's it's not a full picture any longer. So it, we're all in there and we're all dependent on one another. It's great training for anybody. I really would encourage anyone to <laughs> take part in a play to learn about uh, you know team building and ensemble building and leadership. It's extremely, extremely important. I think people really touch their God-given essences when they are making art. And when they're making art together, you're in a framework of, this sounds so mushy to say, but actually it's like love and action. It's like you are interacting with people the way our natures design us and their highest levels to interact. Mm -hmm. And the joy that it releases is really beyond description. And that's why people spend lives in relative poverty pursuing the arts. Because they touch it, it touches them, and there's nothing else they want because they recognize their nature in that. Sorry to hit your microphone, I'm getting excited. But the pleasure of that's beyond frivolous, and that's the thing that sometimes gets frustrating when you try to explain it to a world that's based on stuff and acquisition. And we all know that acquisition, or we all should know, that acquisition does not equate with either happiness or the revelation of what your nature is. Um, so there is a, uh, a, an imperative, I think, to keep this language of being alive for the people that still crave it and seek it, and to bring it to the people that are suffering without it. And there's not one child who should ever grow up without being in touch with the living arts, you know? What is it we are giving young people as an inducement to live and be joyful in this world? You know, to have stuff and avoid crime? I mean, it, there's got to be more, something more positive, something deeper in what we are. We're not just intellects, money makers, or product inventors. And uh, we may need to go back 200 years to find the language to talk about that again. But our, our world is sick in many ways, and all people want healing, want to be healing forces on, on Earth. And the arts are a tangible, structured, practical, artistic, engaged, formal way to do that. It's also related to your, not, your ability not just to express yourself, but your ability to have an opinion, your moral sense, your ability to have a voice that is connected to your conscience, to be able to speak up without fear, to be able to speak the truth to authority, all of these things that we to have value. Voice. To have a voice, yeah. know how to use your voice from your core, from your center, not just a talking head that is detached from your soul and your heart and your feelings. 
all interconnected. That's what we teach is that the voice and the body are one. They're not two separate entities. And the voice doesn't live in the head. It lives in the diaphragm, in the breath, in the life force. could really hear the passion in Amy's voice when she talked about the impact live performance has, or could have, in our world. But is it really such a big deal if it takes a backseat to other, more modern forms of entertainment? Sure, maybe people don't go out to plays as much as we used to, but I always figured that was just because they can be a sort of treat, maybe, a night out. If there are all these wonderful things live performance gives us, there should be no reason for us to stop going as much. Why would we throw away these things we supposedly can't get anywhere else? What else is so appealing to us that we would try and replace a life experience with it? Well, I mean, technology, which is our friend, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and I think technology is glorious, but uh, again, it's about detachment um, and not a uh, live experience. I think that's part of it, while we're being led away. I think that fear also leads you away from human contact. Uh, people don't go out as much as they used to. They stay home, watch TV, uh, really don't engage with the rest of the world. So, um, you know, and, and the world is a scary place, but it's a nice thing to dare to make contact with other people. Uh, and, um, you know, it's just easier to stay home and watch TV than it is to go out and pay money and see some live theater. So I think that's part of it. Well, I think Kay would can, can agree with this or not, but I think probably one of the first things we see going all the way is we've got a we've got a nation that can't listen, that that That's is not right. they are not orally tuned. They can't listen to a They're poem. Used to sound bites yeah. and flattening, quick uh, changes, brutal, you know, flashes, vulgar, from, uh, over the internet, sense oriented culture, intercuts. Everything has to happen quickly. I mean, look at any commercials or even. Uh, the sound level at movies is enormous and there's always an explosion or a gun or something violent that has to be jarring. There isn't, uh, rarely are there quiet moments in film or, uh, you know, right, it's totally on television. Driven. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And everything just goes by in a second. Okay, so it's easier to just sit at home. That makes sense. We have the option to be entertained without having anything expected of us. But Amy and Kay think it also runs deeper than simple laziness. They think it has something to do with how we are trained to act as early as childhood. Yeah, there's a tendency towards disconnect and not feeling and coolness. I have a 15-year-old son, and uh, it's really all about being cool and not losing it. And that often, uh, with a lot of my younger students, to get them in touch with their passions is difficult because they have been uh, trained or conditioned to non-feeling. Yeah. And it's, as an actor, it's all about feeling and doing, uh, not standing back and uh, disconnecting, letting go. It's about engagement. I think that's really true, you know, culturally and always we're trained um, to be sort of remote, and I think I found certainly in my classes in Stanford over the years that the greatest satisfaction for people uh, who are exploring performance is when they start making breakthroughs and daring to show who they are in front of other people and make that human connection. And as we know, 
um, in every aspect of being effective in the world, you have to be comfortable with who you are. Most people have inhibition about speaking their mind, speaking up, speaking out. It's the most common fear. I think, isn't it rated K over fear of death and fear yeah, of flying, the fear, fear of public speaking? So why is that? That's actually quite interesting when you unravel that and unpick it a little bit and go, what is the fear of saying what I think and feel when there's big groups of people present? You know, and it's profound, actually. And as you go on that journey, whether you're going to be a performer or you just want to learn about yourself, parts of yourself come together as a more integrated person. And as a more integrated person, I believe you also become a more integrated uh, citizen of the world, you know, in terms of your power, usefulness, um, honesty, and fearlessness, which I would anybody say we can't use that as a culture? <laughs> This vein runs much deeper than I first thought. It seems now like there are so many negative aspects to our society that could be improved by the experience and understanding live performance gives us, if only it were appreciated and supported more. But it's not like people are actively attacking the live arts. It's more like they're simply fading away from apathy. It's an interesting shift. I mean, it's been true for a long time that we've been a consumer society, and of course, uh, you know, sales is kind of the engine that drives our world and our universe. I think as marketing forces have entered almost every aspect of, the, of our lives, we're struggling to deal with what it all means. We don't have a government that supports the arts at a level where they don't have to fight for the entertainment dollar. You know, there are other countries that have more of an understanding that live performance requires subsidy. Where that subsidy is is where the culture puts its value. You know, we don't have that kind of, the arts have been struggling for support in this country at kind of an appalling level when you consider what the, what the gross income of the country is. We don't facilitate it in America as a culture, uh, arts as a culture, and going out as a culture. And I think it's been a struggle always here, partly because we're big and spread out. We don't have little old town centers that are 300 years old where everybody's used to going to the little opera center or the community center or the park where there was performance. So we're dealing with the vastness and loneliness of the American ge geography, among other things. That's been part of it. You compound that with the internet, where you know people can pretty much please themselves without ever having to be stretched into a new arena. It's very difficult to appeal on that level. That's why I think the arts really will get awakened as part of a general, or there's a larger cultural upheaval, in a way, that has to happen, I think, when people start missing that thing that's going away from us. and rediscover the links that give us reason to live and reason to care, I think we're in trouble. It may go out of the world, you know, it's under threat. We're defending um, a form that's almost out of existence, which is, you know, oral storytelling, witnessing, sharing with the community. In that way, um, stories that theoretically are, uh, you know, capable of touching all of us, and the fact is that is going, that is going away, and it's an important thing to talk about. Nobody has the patience or the attention span that it takes to sit and listen to something. And consequently, the ability to sustain a thought of length, complexity, and resonance. And it, it, I was shocked when I started reading some of the speeches that were written in the 19th century. Oh, I can't remember. Um, 
Sojourner Truth, maybe in some of the speeches that were in the back of my Encyclopedia Britannica, those historic speeches, and I go, my God, nobody can write like this anymore because nobody can think like this anymore. The founders of our country, all of those men were thinkers, uh, readers, they understood the architecture of the mind. Not only could they write eloquently, but they could speak and command a listening audience that was actually hungry to hear. Uh, hear equals think. So we're moving towards sensation and out of the realm of intellectual construction, vision, visualization. Um, and what Kay was mentioning also in favor of sensation-oriented culture that really is quite bereft emotionally and is truly suffering emotionally. I think we see that, I mean, in almost any kind of index you want to look at. Um, and we're not facing our problems and not thinking about them. And I do think it's related to the ability to hear, listen, and think. And I do think that is related in part to the oral tradition and the live tradition that performance repre represents. kind of a depressing thought to think that if this is the state of our world now, where will we be in 10 years or 50 years? What will the state of the live arts be then? We can't really answer that question here, but there is one thing we can be sure of, that there will always be people like Amy and Kay who love to perform and who know what it is you get out of live performance that you can't get anywhere else. And it's the most wonderful combination of um, incredibly hard work and rigorous super focus and a kind of play, the play experience, playful experience that we don't often get to do past childhood. It's like elevated play to a sublime level at its very best. And if you're lucky enough to spend your life working in the arts, you know, it's as if you never give up your, um, your creative joy that I think belongs to all human beings. Almost the first thing besides mommy and eating is the pleasure in playing and making and being a supreme creator. That's what we are. That's what human beings are meant to do. Not push products at Walgreens, not sweep floors, not be slaves of other men, but to make things for joy. It's the opposite of everything bad in the world. <laughs> you know, and we kill it in our children, in ourselves, in our culture, in each other, and we're mourning it our whole lives. And we don't know why we're so unsatisfied, why we're depressed, what's missing. And what's missing is the fact that we are each and every one of us gifted on a primary level and we love to play with each other. And if people did that, our world would be very different. At the end of things, I suppose it's worth noting the irony. There we were, Amy, Kay, and myself, sitting in Kay's office with a microphone between us, recording our thoughts on the merits of live performance. And we all knew that I had every intention to edit and alter their words in order to make the things that they said more powerful and effective to you, the listener, hearing my pre-recorded voice right now. So, anyway, that's, um, my soapbox just broke down. You'll edit me, I hope. <laughs> but all the editing in the world can't reproduce the experience of sitting next to Amy and Kay and having a conversation with them, of hearing their voices and seeing their faces and being a part of that conversation, not just a listener. And that's what liveness gives us, a sharpness of mind, a total sensory and intellectual experience, and an engagement that cannot be reproduced after the fact. It's there once, and then it's gone. It has to be experienced to be appreciated. 
and there's nothing that can ever replace that feeling. What you see on live theater is what is right there. Uh, and also, it's really exciting for the actor. It's terrifying and wonderful at the same time. Uh, you can't go back and fix a mistake. It's spontaneous and, uh, you know, thrilling. It's a rush. And they get that kind of thrill that Amy's talking about, the, the thrill of creation, interaction, being alive. It's, you know, you're more alive at that moment than any other time. In our last story, we're going to take a look at one of the instances of live performance that is still surviving, and even growing in popularity. Spoken word, or performance poetry, is a growing art form. All around the nation, spoken word artists give shows or compete in events called poetry slams where judges decide who did the best job. I went behind the scenes and onto the stage of the Stanford Spoken Word Collective's spring show to try and capture the live experience. Calling party. Calling party. Um, I got Marlon. I'll call Dylan. Okay. I can call Marlon. I'll call. I'll call. I'll call Greg. Oh, where you be? Alon. <laughs> okay. See you soon. Uh, we're in the Hume Writing Center, I think. I don't really know this place that well because I don't have any classes in this building. This is where the Spoken Word Collective meets on Thursday nights for workshop. And uh, this is the last Thursday before our show on Saturday, so we're, we're going through rehearsals right now. <laughs> no, hey Zusa, hey Zusa, my piece is dedicated to you. You haven't heard it yet, but you'll love it when you do. Wait, who else? My name is Max Hare. I'm actually new to the Spoken Word Collective uh, this year, as well as like slam poetry in general, because I'm a transfer student, so I'm new to Stanford this year. Um, and I'm going to perform one solo piece, uh, which is just kind of untitled at this point, but a poem from my mom, and then whichever collabos that we do, collaborative pieces, so poems that uh, involve more than one poet, one stage. Every I time. eat Y chromosomes for breakfast. My sperm has sperm. We, we are men. men. And as men, we follow a certain set of commandments. Man commandments. Commandments. Commandment one, number one. Show no weakness. The last time I cried was never. When I found out about Heath Ledger's death, my eyeballs only became slightly moist. Last week, my girlfriend sat me down and said, we need to talk. You're not communicating your feelings to me. So I looked her in the eyes and I grunted. <laughs> like a man. My name is Dylan Kyle. I've been in Spoken Word Collective for four years. I am the most senior member along with Fonz. I've been there since freshman year. And this Saturday, I am doing a poem. Uh, the name of the poem, I'm in the process of figuring out something around baccalaureate address, but we'll, we'll figure it out there. The Spoken so. Word Collective is an amalgamation of 16 different souls, 16 different souls, collectively come together. There's like 16 people or 18, I don't even know how many people are. We lose a lot of people every quarter and they come together. But basically it's 18 people from like very different backgrounds, very different kind of writing styles, very different philosophies on the world. Well, not that, generally pretty liberal, but very different kind of mindsets and where they're coming from. We are currently in rehearsal on Thursday, which is, you know, the rehearsal before the show, and we're going through everything, and basically what we do is we, uh, everyone goes up there, reads their piece, and we give some like final critiques if people want to like have some direction. 
in the middle. Where you repeated that line. Yeah, My name is Dawn. I'm a senior and I've been in the collective since my sophomore year, so that makes this the third year. Um, the poem that I'm going to do this Saturday is currently untitled, um, but it's about my grandmother. I think I started writing poetry soon after I had gotten into the collective, which is an interesting story. Um, I had thought the collective was originally a, a kind of drama group, <laughs> so I mistakenly found myself in it and really just started writing poetry after I'd gotten in. But it's been it's been a good experience um, Ooh, learning how to do. When that. did I start writing poetry? Probably, probably probably sometime toward the end of middle school, I guess. Uh, performance poetry, that's a good question, because it's a completely different beast. Um, not until I got to Stanford. Uh, it was actually kind of a freak coincidence how I got involved in, uh, in the Spoken Word Collective at all. One Sunday, I was uh, going to take the Caltrain to San Francisco to go to this concert, and I missed the first train. And so I came back onto campus and ate brunch, which is something that I hadn't done before. Um, and outside of Stern, there was just a poster for auditions for the Spoken Word Collective. Uh, I guess poetry, like, per se, as poetry, I probably started doing, like, freshman year for Spoken Word. Like, I hadn't done anything before that. I just came in, and I had done a lot of, like, drama in high school, and I had done a lot of writing, just creative writing before that. And was like, I want to do both. This is a way to combine both of them together. And, like, I'm, like, a mechanical engineering major, so this is, like, a a way to keep the arts and performance in my life without having to completely sacrifice it. I almost think with like things like like poems that are this like this personal that almost thinking like less about how you want to perform it and more like just like performing performing it for yourself in your room enough times so that you like feel comfortable with it so when you get up on stage like Pretend you're saying this to him. Like, how would you be feeling with every line? People really are more receptive to poetry when it's performed and they're seeing it live in front of them. I think that spoken word, in the way that it it combines poetry and performance, makes poetry accessible to a much larger audience than than other than written poetry would have. I think it's a it's a different art form. Different art form because it's not like a lot of it is the performance. You can have something written down, and with, with the written poem, the whole idea is you go over and pour over it and spend hours and hours looking hours at line, and after hours, line after line after line. And with line. spoken word, it has to be more blunt. It has to be more kind of like in your face. And part of that is taking taking writing, having good writing, but then saying, how can I deliver this in one instance? How can I have this be kind of a communal experience? Why do I perform? Jeez, I don't know. Probably because I'm extremely. Uh, egocentric and have no other like appropriate means of expressing that more more than that but I just like being involved in performance poetry it's really nice like when you go to a slam somebody goes and performs and then sits down and listens to the next person perform and you really kind of I don't know bond it was like it was very it was like the same it was the same tone it wasn't monotone but it was like the same type of tone the whole way so I thought like there were certain places you could be more like more animated um it's less, it's less for me than, than for the messages I want to get across to an audience. So it's really gratifying to me when people come up to me afterwards and say things like, you know, the message that you were saying really resonated within me, and then I know that people are listening to what the poetry is saying. It's like, uh, I don't know, to me it's, it's, it's one of the better just rewarding feelings that I get on uh, a semi-regular basis at Stanford, much better than, like, grades or... Um, Anything like that, yeah. Wait, wait. Does anyone want to come just, like, put up some last posters in White Posit now? 
Is, is our main poster still okay? The blue thing, or is it? I think the blue thing is still okay, but we still have like all these colored ones. And I was thinking we could just replace. I don't know if I do really prepare mentally anymore. Maybe it used to be, like I said, since I'm new to performance poetry, it did take a lot more preparation once upon a time just because like being on stage and having to especially recite not not just not just memorize lines uh, from Shakespeare, but like really recite something that you've written yourself and kind of share a piece of yourself with the audience um, took a lot more mental preparation because that just the thought of that was kind of scary. On Saturday, I'll probably go somewhere where I can hear myself talk and not be distracted by other people and go through the poem at least four or five times by myself. At um, least four a normal or five speed, times by myself. just really trying to understand how my performance sounds to myself. Um, if I have time earlier in the day, I might videotape myself and watch how the performance looks to my own eyes and then adjust accordingly. Most pieces I've written, I've never like read through more than once or twice and I've not really edited them, them particularly well. And in many ways, you know, that's like me being kind of lazy and procrastinating like I do with everything in my life. But in some ways, it's also kind of nice because there's this idea that like right now in this instant is when I was writing this. I'm very much like centered in this. It's not something which again has been rehearsed 25 times. and has this very kind of manufactured feel where I'm like, and then the black winds fell on. You know, there's, uh, there's this feeling in spoken word where, it, again, it feels like everything has a specific rhythm which you've planned out beforehand, whereas if you write it on the spot or write it right beforehand, it feels a lot more organic. It feels a lot more like you're doing it. Damn it. I was hoping I was last because I don't have it memorized at all. But that's, 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 what, I, but that's what I wanted to ask you. Is that, like, I was thinking, like, but, um, you know, I feel really nervous on stage. Do yeah, I have to have it memorized? Let's see where you are. Let's see where you are right now. We'll see what I'm not very... Yes, I am afraid of performing. Um, I used to be, and I guess to some extent still am, um, the person in classes when you have to go around in a circle and say your name. Um, my name is I'm Dawn. I'm terrified of saying my name, my name even is though Dawn. I can't do it wrong. My name is Dawn. It's, it is, it's hard getting up in front of an audience. I mean, I think it's the sense of vulnerability. You're getting up on stage and performing something that means a lot to you. Um, a lot of the poems the collective performs are really personal poems that, that wouldn't ordinarily be shared in such a public spectrum, but Getting up there and exposing yourself um, to something so dear to you really makes performing um, nerve-wracking sometimes. My parents are coming. Which one? Which one are you embarrassed by? Both virginity and man. My parents specifically no. came. They, they saw some spoken word at Yale and they're like, you don't do that weird sexual spoken word where they say <laughs> penis jokes all the time. No. Verbatim. No, Verbatim. My mom was like, this was really disturbing. Dylan, Dylan, please. No, no, no. Fine, let's do it. I, I'll do it. Oftentimes I'm known for playing characters and giving voices, um, which <laughs> which is fun. But um, a lot of my, my more favorite poems are ones where I'm really portraying myself and giving um, a story about an experience that I've had. I think, I mean, I think it's, I think it is like a combination of the two. I think certainly there's like a voice and a character, which I don't typically, you know, it's not like my conversational thing, but it is like a consistent character that's been along for a long enough amount of time that you could say this is yourself or your own style. Because it's portrayed as a character and it's not being portrayed as like, this is me being honest. I think it is in that way actually more of me being honest, if that makes sense. Um.
work on your pieces um, and then people can like have individual critiques in themselves tomorrow when they have time. I will probably be at Coverly all day on Saturday if you guys want to have rehearsal of pieces and show order and all that. Um, but regardless of that, everyone needs to be at Coverly at 6 p.m. Oh, so we can go to Coverly earlier than 6 on Saturday? Wait, I thought the doors didn't open. They don't open, but I will be, I'm going to try to get a code and get in there. Oh, so you can. What are you, you going to be doing? It is March, no, it's May 16th, 17th, 17th, it's a Saturday evening, but the sun is still out and we are here at Coverly Auditorium preparing for the Spoken Word Collective's spring show at Stanford. It's 6.50, um, 40 minutes until the open mic, uh, 70 minutes until the show itself starts. And you guys will do all of your, um, all of your mic adjustments in the dark. And then we won't cut the lights on until you're ready to start. In the opening of the show, the idea is to give short bursts of poetry um, in kind of a surround sound fashion. So we have people jumping up from all over the stage and the audience, giving their famous last words. I spend my last breath on ancient sound waves, my ancestors' tongue dissipating until it disappears. And even though our words are buried with our bones, I spend my last breath saying this. Damrod, prove to me that the good does not always have to be beautiful. Justify my life, God. I will resign myself to die happily. We came into this world screaming. Children of rainbows and rain clouds, it is our silence that is unnatural. That is unnatural. Our lifestyle. And these are our famous last words. Good evening, class. My name is Professor Johnston, and welcome to Coverly Auditorium at Stanford. When I walk up on stage, I fall into this sort of void where I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just focused solely on the upcoming three minutes, three, four minutes where I'm going to give this poem. And so I think it's hard for people to imagine a time when your mind is not thinking about anything, because so oftentimes it is. But when you're on stage, I'm just concentrating on In English, on the word grandmother the feels poem. good to me, happy and warm. But in Mandarin, though the word pōpō means maternal grandmother, it feels thick on my tongue, heavy and unwanted. In my early okay, okay. Yeah, all right, all right. Who's in the audience? Who's in the first row? All right, um, do I know anybody in this audience? Yes, all right, let's pretend like I don't. All right, where's the mic? Adjust the mic, adjust the mic. Breathe. My first class ever was Mysticism 101, a poetry class without words, taught to me by my mother at around the age of four. I used to sit at the kitchen table and read books about the universe she gave me. And when I say read, I mean look at pictures, scrutinize, stare at pictures rotating every planet on every page until I got dizzy until the Milky Way became a spiral galaxy merry-go-round, an extraterrestrial toilet flush, constellations melting into constellations that formed a swirling lollipop in space. A picture I could taste and taught me that somehow... God is listening! <laughs> 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 
I can't wait for me to do my piece and then just be like lightning strikes the building. Don't think it was the first time. Poetry. I sinned underneath crosses, role playing with canes and able to bend backwards, hands raised in prayer as friction started fires to make the devil jealous and my bush. What? I think it's God talking. <laughs> I'm really conscious of people's reactions in the audience. If there's a laugh, I'm really conscious of the fact that I need to stop afterwards and let people take that moment and then continue on so that they get the maximum effect of the poem. So I'm really kind of, I'm really concentrating on making a connection with the audience. When the audience doesn't respond to poetry, it makes performers feel kind of disheartened with the poem because in spoken word, the audience's response really matters because it's an audience interactive process. Um, whereas compared to just written words, you can read it and then you don't necessarily have to respond to the page. But it's like having a conversation with somebody. If the audience is just silent and doesn't respond, then for me personally, it feels like I haven't reached them or haven't communicated my message effectively enough. The way that Slam got started, it was supposed to be like a very audience interactive environment, you know, like. The, the audience was supposed to be able to boo or applaud in the middle of your piece when they when they re just when they felt something viscerally at that moment um, and that's the thing spoken word is not necessarily slam like we're just performance poetry so it's more of like a, a very relaxed setting where I guess the audience is just there to sort of I don't know uh, enjoy hopefully I guess like that is their role is to enjoy the thing about spoken word, and because it is so supportive and it's an audience interactive process, it makes the the art of performing a lot less intimidating because people are there to support I gave you. Four years of work, cash, four years of itching and pregnant twitches. She's a Chevrolet-like dad, Zakoop that hugs the ground in hot little arms. Coming from some sort of like performance background from high school, it's nice to see like the audience interaction, see how they respond, and you can kind of like cater your performance towards that. So it really is kind of more of a creative process where everyone is collaboratively working together. It is sixth grade, a year full of endless kickball games and tenth place in the spelling bee. I am 12 years old, the eldest in my family, and the closest thing to an adult that my mom has to talk to. It's a Sunday afternoon, and we sit on the edge of her bed in that August heat. She turns to me and says, Yaj, go get me a beer. Like a lone satellite moving around a moon, I'm gravitated to that usual shelf in the fridge. Back in the room, we stare at a closet full of life things, of dresses with shoulder pads, of photo albums of better times, of letters from long ago people. She tells me, Yaj, there's a sibling that you don't know about. I called it long time ago, baby. With her fingernail, when I perform, if I haven't memorized the poem completely, I'm really concentrating on making sure that um, the poem goes smoothly. But if the poem's there in my head, I'm really concentrating on how I'm delivering the poem itself. There's not any sort of dialogue or thoughts that are, that are occurring to me as I perform. It's more concentrating on delivering each word of the poem 
exactly how we had rehearsed it and exactly how I feel that it is in that moment. So I'm not consciously commenting on anything that's going on. I'm just wholly within the poem. And that's a strange, a strange way to describe it, but that's how it is. You're just inside the poem. I know is inconceivable. And at that moment, everything was. She says, Yaj, do you know why you dream so much? It's because I used to sing to long time ago, baby. Going through my That's mind why. when I perform, she tells not me that much. She was Again, I guess like uh, I, I'm trying to, to be somewhere to else than opera, on the stage right then the and there, um, while at the same time kind of being able to pick up on cues and stuff from the audience. If you're just in the moment, you can kind of lose track of where you're trying to go with your piece. I think how people change during poems, or at least how I change during poems, really depends on the content. If it's something that's really been on my mind for a long time, and this is a poem that's really bringing those issues to light, as I go through the poem, I'll feel it, I'll feel the impact of the poem more as the audience responds. A lot of it depends on like the type of poem, but I think the most typical change is kind of feeling like you're into a stride, feeling at some point where it's just like, oh, instead of thinking about what's going on, you kind of get with the audience, get a little bit more ideas, a little bit more comfortable. Um, and so it does kind of feel like that things are flowing a little bit better. I would like to start my speech today with a quote. A quote from the President of the United States of America, as played by Bill Pullman in the 1996 motion picture, Independence Day, also starring Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join those from around the world and we will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind. That word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We are fighting for the right to live, to exist. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We are going to live on. Today is our Independence Day from college. That last part from college, I added that. I think, I think spoken word definitely has a, a very strong power to change people emotionally during the course of, course of a performance. I've seen many audiences, um, when a poem ends in tears, I've seen them uh, holding their sides from laughing so much. I think people are really moved by spoken word. Um, Dear Brandon. And that's, that's what makes it worth doing sometimes. I'm writing you this letter because I don't know how to verbalize what I want to say because it is difficult for me to say the things that I do know and because some of these things will be difficult for you to hear I want you to have this letter to lean back on to bring you to reality to help you through whatever you're going through I need you to know that some of the things that I have to say will be soft some will be harsh but they all need to be said I don't think there's like any like broad cathartic experience where people are like, oh, I used to think this, now I think that. Like I kind of wish that's what it did, but I think for the most part that's not really true. I know I change when I'm an audience member, especially if I hear a really, really good piece. Man, there's something about hearing poetry that just like takes me out of myself, and uh, maybe it's not like a it's not a permanent effect that it has on me like I'll I'll wake up the next morning and like be able to go on with my day but like sometimes you hear just a line it may be like a line or an image or something and it can just drop you to the floor and your mind is just stuck on it for 
seeing you grow into a young Picture woman. Him your first standing there on the edge of a red cliff. Car, He's got braids in his hair as the sun creeps up the horizon and the sky screams out his name and the wind blows on his back, bends his knees and prepares to jump as adrenaline is coursing through his veins and his heart begins to pump. He takes one last cast on your bucket where you are. Despite what many may think Oprah Winfrey is not God, you will not receive divine inspiration from her commencement speech. You must find the fire within yourself. The freedom from gravity, the air blows through his clothes, bliss races past his face. Letting life a group live performance where you're watching the same poem along with two or three hundred other people is really, it really changes the way that you listen to the poem and that you react to it if you had just been watching it yourself. There's something, some collective identity that emerges within the audience that really, it is kind of in a way like a ritual or a, um, a collective spiritual experience because everyone is feeling um, maybe not the exact same emotion, but has heard the exact th same thing and is being moved in different ways. And especially the, the force that comes with, if everyone especially enjoys a poem and gives a rousing um, round of applause or even a standing ovation, it's, there's something in there that can't be captured in a CD recording. When I'm looking for them, I see like beautiful things in the world every single day. But usually, I'm, I'm kind of a secular person. To me, like those acts of beauty are not purposeful like I, I don't I can't look at the person who's like doing those things to me these like acts of beauty or just just moments of beauty um in day-to-day -day life it's really nice to know that somebody is like giving you something like that and yeah that that's I think the best or one of the best things that I can think of right now about like the act of performance that's different than uh just beauty that you see. And that's a promise. And, and that's, that's a promise. promise. And that's, that's a, a promise. Still, Still not, not good, good enough. enough. If you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. Hi, I'm a minority. And I'm a woman. Great question. I agree. I am changed. And I am changed. Pay, Pay no attention, attention to the white males, males behind us. us. I will do anything to protect this country that's given my family hope and my roots a home. I will do anything to support this land of equal opportunity for all people, regardless of gender. Because we are one nation, but many people. Pay no attention to the white males behind us. We are equal, but we are different. Discrimination without evaluation. Under God, indivisible. Pay no attention to the white males behind us. Thank you, and good night. You can find out more about the Stanford Spoken Word Collective at spokenword.stanford.edu. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willingans and Micah Craddy. Thanks to Amy Freed, Kay Kostopoulos, and the Stanford Spoken Word Collective for helping us make our stories. Original music for the stand-up comedy story was created by Noah Burbank. You also heard music from Dave Chisholm, Greg Sell, Chris Babson, and Zach Categari, all of whose music can be found on Stanford iTunes. Right now, you're listening to Kissing Johnny. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, the Center for Teaching and Learning, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would also like to thank Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. 
Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week, same place, same time, for Reenchantment, stories about adults who find ways to keep the enchantment of childhood alive. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Craddy. And I'm Dan McDougall.